Welcome to the podcast of Walking in the Promises. Walking in the Promises is a ministry of God's grace expressed through the unfolding of his word. The following message is by our founder, Marcelo Tolopilo. I really want to preach on the soul's vision of God. The beatific vision. You ever heard of that term? Visio uh, Dei is the Latin. Jesus promised it. In the Beatitudes, for example, he said, Blessed are the pure in heart for what? For they shall see God. Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Now that is an amazing promise, but attached to the promise is a massive problem. Did you hear it? Who are the blessed? The pure in heart. Those are the ones that are going to see God. Now the problem with that is that this is 100% purity without admixture of any corruption. It is to be pure as God is pure. And I don't know about you, but that doesn't describe me. I've got issues with purity. My motives aren't pure. My thinking isn't pure. What I do isn't pure. I need to be made pure like that. I can't do it myself. And that's the problem because it's the pure in heart that will see him. And I will tell you something. We're, we're going to look at a verse in, in a few minutes towards the end that speaks of our ultimate position before God when we see God on that great day. But I, I want to back up a little bit in, so that you can appreciate what that involves because at this point, none of us could see God. We couldn't even be exposed, if you will, to a, a muted presence of God. If we were, there would be a, an ugly scene. It would be very hard. If Jesus Christ, who right now, if you want to know what Jesus Christ appears like, you can read Revelation chapter 1. Even a muted presence of the glory of God would be too overwhelming for us. And let's, let's get this out in the open. Listen, no man, no woman, this side of eternity, in this life, has ever seen the full face of the glory of God. Okay? That's why John 1.18 says, No man has seen God at any time. That's why 1 Timothy 6, and I like to share this with my Mormon acquaintances that believe God has a body and he's about six feet tall and 180 pounds, literally. 1 Timothy 6.16 reads of God the Father who dwells in unapproachable light whom no man has seen or can see. We can't see God. We wouldn't be able to handle it. And so, but you say, I know someone will say, but wait a minute, the Old Testament, the New Testament is full of examples of people who have been visited by God, right? So what is that all about? There are basically three categories, and one that doesn't fit any of them, and I'll share with that, that with you in a moment. But there are three categories of God revealing himself and his partial glory. There's what is called a, a theophany. You ever hear that word? That's simply a visible manifestation of the invisible God. It's like the burning bush was a theophany. 
God didn't appear in his full glory to Moses because he would have killed him. So he appeared to him in a burning bush. All right. Um, sometimes God in the Old Testament completely uh, veiled himself and appeared to other people as a man, the angel of the Lord. In Genesis 18, he appeared to Abraham as a wafer, as a, as a man. So there are theophanies. The second category of God revealing his glory in part uh, comes in visions like Ezekiel and Isaiah and the Apostle John. Those are three examples. And those are the major revelations of visions in, in the Bible, by the way. Daniel also. And then the, the third way, the third category of God revealing himself to men in, in a muted way, in a veiled way, is through miracles, especially the miracles of Jesus. When Jesus performed an act of power, of a miracle, it was as though he was revealing his divine glory just a little bit. John 2.11 tells us that, that at the beginning of his ministry, when he turned the, wine, uh, the water into wine in Cana, it says that was the beginning of his signs revealing his glory. Now there's one more way that God has revealed himself, and this is the closest that any man has ever come to seeing God. Does anybody, would anybody venture a guess as to who that would be? Moses. Okay, if you've got your Bible, turn to Exodus 33. And today may feel a little bit more like a sword drill, but um, like a Bible study than a sermon. But uh, this is important for us to understand so we can understand the ultimate goal of where we're headed, the, our, our soul's vision of God. But in Exodus 33, God reveals himself to Moses in a very unique way. And this is his, basically his commissioning. This is when God was sending him out to rescue the children of Israel. And Moses gives God three requests. The first one is found in verse 13, which is really should be the prayer of every believer. He said this, Now therefore I pray you, this is Moses talking to God, if I have found favor in your sight, let me know your ways that I may know you so that I might. Find favor in your sight. Isn't that a beautiful prayer? He says, I don't know you. So reveal your ways to me. Reveal your word to me so that, not so that I may have a lot of information that's really interesting, but so that I may what? Know you. The word reveals God. And by knowing you, knowing your word, knowing your person, Knowing you personally, I will find favor in your sight. The second request that he makes is in verse 15. He says, then he said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not lead us out from here. In other words, he said, I'll go, but unless you lead the way, unless your presence is with us, then we might as well, well stay slaves in Egypt. Again, beautiful prayer. And then the third request that he had in verse 18 was pretty bold. Then Moses said, I pray you, show me your what? Your glory. And to this, God says, I cannot show you my face. Verse 19, he said, I myself will make my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion 
But he said, you cannot see my face for no man can see me and live. So that third request, what God did was that he took Moses after he said, show me your face in, this, in essence. He took Moses, he put him in the cleft of the rock. He covered him with his hand. Now the Lord doesn't have hands, he doesn't have back. He doesn't have, he, those are anthropomorphic terms that allow us to understand what he, you know, God is communicating. So he put Moses in the cleft of the rock, covered him, shielded him, passed before him, proclaimed his name, and after he had passed by, he withdrew the shielding, and Moses saw, as it were, the back of God, the afterglow of God, the fringes, the tassels of his glory. And that's as close as any man has come to seeing the face of God. And you say, well, what was the response of Moses? He was a pretty righteous man, right? The humblest man in all the earth, the Torah says. What was the response of Moses to that, that fringed view of God's glory? We're not told. But we know this. We can kind of piece a couple of things together. When God appeared to him in the burning bush, which was a much more, much more is bad uh, grammar. It was a greater muted expression of his glory when Moses saw God in the burning bush, Acts 7.32, Stephen tells us that Moses shook with fear and would not venture to look up. We also know in Exodus 34, when Moses went back down the mountain to be with the sons of Israel, his face shone. And get this, they became despairing with terror. So, the fringes of the glory of God reflecting off the face of a sinful man, because he was just a sinner like you and me, terrorized the sons of Israel. I can only imagine that when Moses saw the back of God, he was glad he didn't see his face. He was terrified. Let me show you uh, the result of a theophany. This is found in the book of Judges, Judges 13, and there's a lot of text here. I'm just going to point out a few things, but these are the parents of Samson. Remember one of the judges of Israel? The Israelites were, had turned away from God. God punished them with uh, the Philistines, and, and uh, they were being oppressed by the Philistines, and God rose up a judge. His name was Samson, and he was born to Manoah and his wife. We don't know the wife's name. But basically, they see, they get a visit from God. This time as a theophany and as the angel of the Lord. And they don't know that they're talking to God at first. And so this is, again, um, Judges 13, if, I, if you need to know the, the reference. And so the angel of the Lord comes and tells Manoah's wife, you're, gonna, you're barren, but you're going to bear a son in a year's time. And Manoah and his wife believed the, this messenger from God. They knew he was from God. They believed his message, and they said, can we fix a very Middle Eastern thing to do? Can we fix a meal for you? Can we feed you? And the angel of the Lord begins to reveal himself because he says, I, I will not eat your food, but if you offer a burnt offering to the Lord, that'll be okay. And so Manoah erected a little, had an altar there. He, he put a young goat there in grain. And, um, 
as he's burning this, he, Manoah asks the stranger, the wafer, by the way, what's your name so that when these words come to pass, we may honor you, okay? And there the angel of the Lord says to Manoah, why do you ask me your name? This is verse 18. Since you see it is wonderful or incomprehensible, literally supernatural. And he begins to do power signs in front of Manoah and his wife. And they get the idea that maybe this is no ordinary man. But this is a presence, a visit from the pre-incarnate Christ, I believe, the God of heaven and earth to them. And as the fire roared from the altar, the angel of the Lord went to heaven on this flame. He ascended with it. So what was their response to that? I mean, you and I might think, that's really nifty. That's cool. That dude just flew up, right? In. What did they say? Verse 20, at the end of the verse, it says that they fell on their faces to the ground. And then verse 22, so Manoah said to his wife, we shall surely die, for we have seen God. I'm telling you guys, if the Lord were to appear in our midst veiled, we would be overwhelmed by a sense of our own sin immediately. Where there is an expression of the holiness of God, the sin of man is very poignant. That would be followed with guilt and shame. Then we would have a sense of abject terror followed by some kind of, as Manoah and his wife experienced, some kind of physical prostration where you're, you're on the ground, you're on your knees, you're shaking violently. That's the response of even godly people to the fringes of God's glory. I remember a few years ago, quite a few years ago, back in the early 70s, there was this guy that was making, late 70s, early 80s, he was making the rounds of the lecture circuit among uh, churches, and he was selling a lot of books. And he had uh, written a book because he, he apparently, his name was Dr. Richard Eby. He was an ODO, I think. And uh, he claimed to have gone to heaven and come back. Even though John, I believe it's 3.13, says only one man has done that, and that's Jesus Christ. And the Apostle Paul was also ushered into the third heaven, the, the presence of God, and came back and lived. But he wasn't allowed to talk about it, let alone write a book. But this guy was saying, I went up to heaven and I uh, talked to God, the Father, God, the Holy Spirit. I talked to Jesus and it was warm and it was lovely and it was fun and we laughed. It doesn't seem to match with what I'm seeing here. And then, in fact, Dr. Eby said that, that Jesus promised him that he would not die, Eby, until Jesus returned. And Dr. Eby died in 2003. So that didn't come about, and neither did his failed vision, I'm afraid. Because this is what happens to men when even good men, godly people, are exposed to the, the glory of God. Look at Isaiah chapter 6. This is a, an example of someone who receives a vision. The great prophet Isaiah, the, the godliest man in all of Judah, no doubt. And he received a vision. It says in the year, chapter 6, starting with verse 1, in the, in the year of King Uzziah's death, that's 739 B.C., 
King Uzziah had reigned for 52 years, and he was a moderately good king who was a very good stabilizing force on the people of Judah. But he was only moderately good because he put up with a lot of evil. And he was a restraining factor on the evil, but the evil just kept pulling up and damming up behind his restraints. And when he died, after 52 years of ruling, it was like the wall burst. And the, the land was flooded with all manner of evil, and evil people were ruling the day. And what was once good was considered bad. What was once true was considered false. It was a chaotic day. And Isaiah receives this vision, and it's of the Lord sitting on a throne. And he's saying, Isaiah, I'm still in control. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. And seraphim stood above him, each having six wings, these marvelous, amazing creatures. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet out of humility, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said in antiphonal praise, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundation of the thresholds uh, the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. It's quite a vision, isn't it? Yes. It's a vision of the glory of the Lord. And this is happening to righteous Isaiah, a faithful prophet, a faithful preacher, a faithful servant of God. What was his reaction? Was it, man, I can't wait to tell Micah and Hosea, my contemporaries, we're going to sit down and have a latte and break this down bit by bit. It's an amazing, this is the epitome of my experience as a prophet. Quite the contrary. In verse 5, then he said, woe is me for I am ruined. The word woe, it's not a Southern California term. <laughs> woe. It is a, a word that says I am pronouncing judgment. He just pronounced six judgments in chapter 5 uh, against the sins of his people. Greediness in verse 8. The unrepentant hedonness in verse 10 and 11. The, the, the uh, prideful in verse 18. Again, the prideful in verse 21. And uh, those who pervert the truth in verse 20. And those who pervert justice. And then he gets to himself once he's seen the vision of the glory of the Lord and he said, woe is me, for I am ruined. Listen to what the, the, the key lexical study on the Old Testament, the definitive study of the Old Testament uh, lexicon, Brown, Driver, and Briggs. Listen to what they say about this beginning phrase. It says this, this is an impassioned expression of grief and despair implying denunciation. Righteous Isaiah sees a vision of the glory of the Lord. He becomes immediately aware of his sin, and he thinks he's going to be ruined. That means literally to be wiped out. He's going to be incinerated. Why did he feel such a poignant sense of judgment? I, live among a I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. That's what he felt like before the presence of the Lord. What about miracles? Let me take you to uh, a couple of these by example. 
Uh, in Luke chapter 5, this is a familiar scene. Remember the scene where Jesus was preaching from Simon's, Simon Peter's boat? It was anchored just offshore, and he created a little space between he and the people, and he began to preach to the multitude. And then when he was done, he told Peter, hey, Peter, let's put off to deeper water and go fishing. Remember that? And this was a terrible idea, by the way, practically speaking. Because this was beyond midday. You don't go fishing midday. In fact, Peter said, look, Rabbi, I know that I'm a fisherman. I deal with nets. You're a rabbi. You deal with books. And I'm not telling you my business, but we fished all night in the prime spot of the day to fish, and we caught nothing. Now you want us to go fishing? Fine. The fish are deep. Our nets can't reach them, but we'll go. We'll put out to to deeper water for you, Rabbi. And they put out to deeper water, and Jesus told them where to drop the nets, and what happened? The nets were teeming with fish. In fact, the, the nets began to strain and, and break and buckle under the pressure, and they had to call their partners over with the other boat, and they filled both boats with fish, and the boats began to sink because of the sheer magnitude of the catch. That was Jesus saying, you want to know who I am? Catch the glory. And when Peter recognized that, when Peter saw the power of Jesus Christ in that phenomenal miracle, you know what he did? He literally, it says, he fell, he collapsed, he crumbled at Jesus' feet and said, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. In Mark 4, it's a beautiful story. Mark 4, 44 and 41 especially. You have Jesus and the disciples crossing the Sea of Gennesaret, the Sea of Galilee, also known as the Sea of Tiberias. Those are all names used for the same body of water. And a storm came up. Remember the, the story? And Jesus was asleep on the stern of the ship on a cushion. And they were being overcome by gale force winds. Which, when The Sea of Galilee is 690 feet below sea level. And it's surrounded by hills. And so those winds sometimes just get generated and they whip into the Sea of Galilee and they cause literally hurricane conditions. And these waves that were taking, that the boat was taking, they were taking water because they were overwhelming the boat. And it says they were afraid because they thought they were going to perish. I mean, that's pretty normal. And so they went and woke Jesus up and they said, Master, do you not care that we're going to perish? It's like for Pete's sake, be sensitive, wake up and at least be awake for our death. <laughs> I don't understand that, but that's what they were saying. And Jesus stood up and rebuked them and said, have you no faith? And it says that he rebuked the wind and he rebuked the sea and it became literally, it says, perfectly calm. Can you imagine going from a squall of hurricane proportions to all of a sudden perfect peace? And the text says that they were afraid when they thought they were going to die. But when Jesus performed that miracle, they were literally very much greatly terrified. <laughs> That's how it reads in the Greek. 
multiple adjectives with add-ons to say they were scared out of their mind as they saw the glory of Christ in that great, great miracle. One more example, and this is, I guess, back to a vision, but the, the example of John the Apostle. John the Apostle was a close intimate of the Lord, right? I think a couple of weeks ago, or last time Eric was preaching, he was saying you know, that they, there was like the 120 in the upper room that were left at the beginning of the, of the church, right? Um, and Jesus' family was up there. 120 believers. After all those tens of thousands of people that were fed by Jesus and claimed to be followers, there's 120 left. But in that 120, the 10% were the, the disciples. One was a wash, but he was replaced by Matthias and Paul, if you will. So you had the 12, and then you had the three. You had Peter, James, and wrong, John. Not wrong. <laughs> Peter, James, and John. I'm often wrong. He rarely was. He wrote scripture. I haven't. But you had the three. And among the intimates of the Lord, there was John, who leaned on Jesus' breast when he ate and probably was his first cousin. They were very, very close. And so this is Jesus in Revelation chapter 1, whom John knows as an intimate friend. And John is probably about 91 to 93 years old. He's been a faithful servant all his life, and for that, he gets busted, and he's out in Patmos busting rocks at 93. Can you imagine that? Swinging a hammer, breaking rocks, his only crime is being faithful. You would think that when he saw Jesus, everything would be okay. It's his faithful master and friend. And yet when he saw Jesus, verse 17 tells us that he said, when I saw him, the Lord Jesus, I fell at his feet as a dead man. He couldn't stand the glory in this vision. So you want to see God? It's pretty rough right now. And yet, this is the capstone promise to every Christian. That you're going to see God. Now listen, this one last verse I'm going to just probably open a little bit for you because this describes, in Jude 24, it describes our beatific vision, our, our soul's vision of God. It describes that day when you and I die or are translated by the Lord's power into his very presence. When you see him, what will you do? Will you crumble in shame and fear? Let me show you. This is Jude 24, a little epistle of Jude tucked in right before the book of Revelation, so it's at the end of your Bible. This is Jude was the, the half-brother of Jesus and the brother of James, the first pastor of the Jerusalem church. But uh, he starts off his epistle with Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. A bondservant was a slave who would, by choice, adhere himself to his master for life and the master would, in turn, provide all the slave needed. He says, I'm just a humble bond servant of Jesus Christ. Oh, yeah, and I'm the brother of James. And this is an epistle to encourage us to persevere in fighting for the faith. But then the, the, the benediction is so beautiful. 
And I'm just going to read or look at, we're going to look at verse 24. And it says this, Now to him, and the him here refers to God the Father. Now to him who is able, very interesting word. It's the word dunameno. It comes from the word dunamine. The only reason I say that is because dunamine sounds like what? Dynamite. In fact, the word means powerful. And it's used in the Gospels, uh, it translated as miracle. So this is God's miracle power. And the interesting thing about the word dunameno or dunamai is that it always refers to the power of which it speaks to the person which it references. So this is God's power to him. This is not dependent, whatever is going to happen here is not dependent on me, my personal holiness, your personal piety, this is all God's amazing, ultra-crazy power for, for us, toward us. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, and that is stumbling in error, but I want to draw your attention to the next phrase, and to make you, what does it say? I have the NAS, and the next word is stand. To him who is powerful to God, who is powerful to make you stand. Where? In the presence of his glory. Now guys, this is not a theophany. This is not a vision. This is not the glory of God revealed in a miracle. This is not a muted, veiled vision of the glory of God. This is the full, unmasked, unsheathed, amazing glory of God and all its beauty. This is the full blast of God's glory. And it says, God's word says, that God's power by his grace is going to make a stand in that fury of glory. Why? Will we be even mindful of our sin? No, it says we're going to be blameless. We're going to stand in the presence of God's glory, blameless. That means without spot or wrinkle, spotless. And then it says, with great joy. <laughs> the sense of dread, the sense of fear, the sense of denunciation that we would feel right now before a holy God will be removed completely. And this is one of those words, great joy, that is almost impossible to translate into English. In fact, I was having a good time reading the commentaries and the lexical aids about this because they kept on trying to add adjectives to it, like this is exceeding really great gladness. This is exceeding crazy joy. And one conservative commentator said, implying the movement of the body. <laughs> And it's like he finally gave up and he said, okay, leaping and dancing. <laughs> this is absolute, pure, unadulterated joy. The closest, I mean, we can't put words together to describe this. And the only thing I can think of is you have small children, grandchildren or children. Think of your four-year-old and giving him or her a stack of pancakes absolutely drenched with syrup that he or she consumes in com just completely, and in about 20 minutes you tell him you're going to Disneyland. <laughs> what happens? <laughs> yeah! 
right? A sticky, joyful mess. <laughs> Guys, this is where we're going. Into the very presence of God Almighty. And when we get there, we're going to be as spotless as Jesus is spotless. We're not going to be filled with anything but joy before the glory of the Lord, of the Lord as we stand there. That is our ultimate destiny. Praise the Lord. Amen. And so we ought to, I think, guys, allow this to sink into our brains this week. And we need to evaluate life through these lenses. You know, what are you committed to? What about your marriage? What about the training of your children? What about your service to Christ? One day, the Apostle John tells us that we will be like him because we shall see him, what? As he is. And before a holy God, we're going to be as holy as his son. Let's evaluate things, our priorities, through those lenses. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for just this little window into the reality of where we're going. Lord, right now, we may want to see you. We long to see you. We look forward to seeing you. But Lord, we just, we couldn't handle your glory in these bodies of unredeemed flesh. And yet you promise us, Lord, that you, by your power and your grace and your redemptive ability, are going to bring us to your presence and help us, not help us, but make us stand in the presence of your glory, blameless with great joy. And we thank you for that promise. Help us to evaluate our lives in light of it. And we pray in Jesus' name. You've been listening to the podcast of Walking in the Promises. If you would like to learn more about our ministry or invite Marcelo to speak, visit us online at witp.org.